0: Amazing to have you guys here. I appreciate so much um, the guys that we have leading us in worship. Um, We're really blessed here. Uh, Guys that are humble, guys, and guys that have tremendous talent. And tonight, just that we got to share in kind of this moment of intimacy together. Really, really cool. Um, Because we're all intimate, I'd like to be intimately connected with you a little bit by being vulnerable if I could. I think that, um, I think there may be this perception from you guys at times, or of other pastors or teachers, that um, what's happening up here is meant for you, um, that, that somehow uh, God has um, like communicated to me what I'm supposed to teach like a professor, and that I'm going to come and communicate that with you, and I just want to let you know, like that is not my heart at all. Um, I got asked a, a few months ago to share with some other pastors about my study habits. And uh, the first thing is they realize oh, it, it's quite a bit different. Uh, I study with a whiteboard and a marker. And as you can imagine, it's, um, though I'm not an artist at all, it's a lot of pictures and diagrams and arrows. and But before any of that happens, I literally spend two full days where I'm just reading over the passage that we're going to go over. And I just pray that God will just grip me and change me with it. No commentaries, no study of it. Just reading it over and over and over. So that when I communicate to you the things that God would have of me, it's stuff that's convicted me and changed me. It's stuff that has literally like grabbed my life and turned me around. You see what I'm saying? And I feel like there's this maybe perception from you that, that that's not happening in me. That I'm just the communicator. But I want to tell you what, like, I despise teaching sermons and passages that haven't already just just completely messed me up. And so I come to you tonight saying that our intention is not to communicate the Word of God like we're in a classroom. Our intention through all of this is that God would change me as a mere man, and that we would wrestle not with my words, but with the words of God, and that we would all leave here encouraged. Are you with me? That said... Last week, when we were wrestling with this concept of not allowing life to steal your life, to rob you of life, and because of the final work of Jesus, we have this chance to live in freedom and joy. I want to I want to share a story with you because it shows how applicable, even in my life, these passages are. I was down this past weekend at the Ocean of the Ozarks. Uh, Have you guys been down there? Have you been down there? It's a, and you know we can call it an ocean because have you seen the waves out there? I had a jet ski out there with my son, Dawson, uh, one of these days. That's a funny side story. He actually fell asleep on the jet ski going 30. This boat like walked by and I saw him pointing and laughing and I looked down and Dawson's asleep on my lap going like Mach 30 over these waves, you know. Um, But it was a great time, uh, high waves. And um, one of the things that um, I saw coming and saw happening was Whenever you have three children away from home and out of the normal rhythm i don 't know how many of you are parents, but it can be a, uh, a, a remedy or a, a rather a, a pill for disaster and uh, My kids are great kids uh, they 're awesome kids they 're loving kids and every once in a while, like every ten minutes or so, they decide that um, especially my son Dawson, just decides that it 's time to not be loving and encouraging and gracious and so this one day he woke up from his nap, and I know some of you guys are very similar. You'd like to nap when you wake up from your nap, like all hell breaks loose because you just don't wake up well. Any of you guys willingly admit to that? You're not a good waker-upper. Um, I, I coined that phrase. Um, my son woke up, and I don't know what happened to the kid, but he woke up, and I mean everything. It was just go time. I mean, he was angry at the world. He was angry at everyone. There could have been a Care Bear in his face. He would have been angry at it. I mean, it didn't... <laughs> It didn't matter. He was just he was just angry at everything. He was getting um, frustrated. He was constantly crying. Just so happened to be the night that my family had like catered in this awesome prime rib meal. We were suffering for the gospel big time. But it was it was frustrating because like Dawson and what was happening, like it was pulling us away from the rest of the family. And soon what I saw is like Heidi and I started biting and getting frustrated at each other. Literally, like for an hour and a half. I don't know what happened to the kid. He just was not happy. Now I want to tell you this. I pulled back after about an hour and a half, and I was starting to get frustrated, starting to get angry. And all of a sudden, I started rehearsing in my mind the things that we had wrestled together with last week. Like, all of a sudden, I was reminded by God that all of this, what's happening with my son, like, it will be over. It will come to an end. And I don't need to be frustrated. I don't need to let these moments rob me of life. I can sit back, rest in the final work of Christ, even in something simple as my son crying a lot, and say, you know what, in the scheme of things, this really matters not, because at some point, guaranteed, he will stop crying. And so literally there, like as frustrated as I was getting, as anxious as Heidi and I were getting with each other, I just literally pulled back and just got to this place where the gospel and the final work of Christ just continually changed me and so I want to encourage you with this I'm not here as a professor I'm here as a mere man being wrecked by the same text that you are and so tonight you will see in my heart that God has done another work and I pray he does it every week and so the passages that we're going to wrestle with this evening pulling nicely off of last week are there for us to get a bigger picture of who God is. So I hope no matter what you're coming from, I hope you're ready to go tonight. So would you please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Last week again, the finality of Christ, the power of Christ, what Christ has done, the implications of that. How we don't have to live in this reality of frustration and anger and biting and devouring each other. Rather, we can have the chance to live in this awesome joy that comes in the work of Christ being done. So then we get to this passage in Hebrews 8. We're going to split this up between uh, these two weeks. Tonight, the first six verses, and next week, the rest. So let's look here at Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 through 6. Are you there? Same there. Brilliant. Thank you. Now, the point in what we are saying is this We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places and the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. A ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. And amazing passages, six verses worth of phenomenal truth. And I hope you're ready to rock and roll tonight. Let's put up verse one. Word for word, let's pull this out here. Now, the point in what we are saying is this we have such a high priest. We have such a high priest, a priest that's not like man, a priest that's permanent, a priesthood that's eternal, a priesthood that's based on his sacrifice and not the sacrifice of animals. What he's saying is we have it. This thing that you long for, this concept of a priest that you would desire, you already have it in the person of Christ. And I love the rest of verse one, one who is seated at the right hand. Let's wrestle a little bit with right hand, shall we? How many Southpaws here? Any lefties? Okay, a few of you guys. Don't want to call you guys out biblically, but I will. Um, 100, listen to this, 141 mentions in the Bible of the right hand, 20 of the left. Now, some may say that the left then is unique. Uh, you, you take it for what it is. Uh, the right hand biblically... Has a clear upper hand, no pun intended there. Uh, very, very significant the right hand is. I'm just kidding. I don't want to offend you and or Rocky, the southpaws. But I will say that the psalmist especially brings out for us this picture of what the right hand is. So I want to show you a couple of psalms here. We'll start in Psalm 20, verse 6. The psalmist says, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his Right There's something significant all throughout the scriptures with God's right hand. Interestingly enough, in the Sanhedrin, there was always a scribe at the right hand and the left hand of the, of the person that was uh, administering the justice. The person at the right hand, the scribe at the right hand, always had to deal with acquittals. Interesting then the imagery that we see in Christ. Psalm 48 says this, as your name, O God, so, you pray, uh, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. This seat at the right hand of God, this place, at the right hand of God is the place of honor. It's the place of great significance. And that's what the scripture says Jesus sits at. He, as the sure and rightful high priest, sits at the right hand of God the Father. But the right hand is great, but how about the word Sit. When you're anxious, what do you do? The rest of you guys, what do you do? Like, when you get anxious, when you get nervous, what are your habits, right? Uh, we all have them. Some of you, um, some of you bite your fingernails. It's an Extremely gross habit. Uh, for those of you that do that, repent and be saved. Um, uh, some, of you, some of you doodle, right? Some of you daydream. Uh, others of you, like me, when you get a little bit anxious and you get a little bit nervous, you start pacing, And I I know you would say of me, well, that's then you're always anxious because you're always pacing. Fair enough, fair enough, right? But like, it's it's tough to be it's tough to be still when you're anxious. This verse is really comforting to me because I started to wrestle with this question: Has God ever given you a reason to doubt that He's holding the universe in His hand? Has He ever given you a reason? Has he ever given you a reason to doubt that he's got it all under control? That it's all going to work out for his glory? Because the picture that he portrays here is Jesus, the rightful high priest, sits down. Why? Because the work of redemption is done. So Jesus then can sit. interestingly enough, in the ancient temple, did you know there was only one seat in the entire temple? That seat of great significance was called to anyone the mercy seat and it was on the mercy seat that blood was sprinkled on by priests a priest would never sit on that seat that would be one of the most blasphemous things they could ever do in the presence of the holy of holies the image of the manifest presence of god but that's the only seat why because the priests make sacrifice and guess what their work isn't done The human priests, though they make sacrifice or though they give gifts of thanksgiving, we'll see that in a second, their work is continual. It's always going. It's never done. Jesus, in his once-for-all sacrifice, his work's done. So guess where he finds himself? Not anxious, sitting on the right hand, at the right hand of God, on the throne in majesty. Are you with me? He sits down. The work is done. We looked at this uh, when we were studying the book of Daniel in the power of the imagery of a seated Christ. Now, I say all this to say, if this is happening, if this is the image, if Jesus is in fact done and sitting at the place of honor, then that should be comforting to you. That God isn't running around, oh no, what's happening here? I'm so confused. I, couldn't, I can't believe these people aren't following me like they should. No. Sitting, waiting, watching, loving, that's our God. Soaking up glory, that's our God, right? So there's this one side of this picture of sitting, but in verse 2, something very, very peculiar happens. Look at this, look at this, verse 2. He is sitting at the right hand of God in majesty, a minister in the holy places. Now, this is interesting, uh, when you grew up, maybe for those of you that were in the church, the word minister was associated simply with a person, right? Like, like maybe in some church context, you would call me like, he's the minister. Uh, well, the problem is, minister is not like a, it's not a, a surname. It's not a name. Uh, a minister is an action. What minister means is to serve. Now, do you see what's happening here? I've just told you, and we just saw in the scripture, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in the holy places. And now this says he's a minister. He's serving in the holy places. This seems a bit contradictory, doesn't it? If he's seated, then what's happening in his ministry in the holy places now? Well, this, this messed with my mind for a bit. I was wrestling with this. How could this be? What is this happening? Is this some kind of, like, kind of mix-up here in the scripture? On the contrary. I landed upon a scripture that spoke of Stephen. Now, some of you guys have heard of Stephen before. One of the first Christian martyrs preaches the gospel in Acts chapter 7. They decide, the leaders of the church at that point, to stone him. And right before he's stoned, he says this. Look at this. Unbelievable. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So we either have a drastic problem at this point or we have a phenomenal perspective change and I believe the latter. Jesus in the work of redemption is sitting because the work is done and standing because he's still serving. Uh, l- let me put it to you this way. How many of you guys know the story where Jesus falls asleep in the storm? You guys know that story? All right, either way, let me tell you again because I love it. So, like, I didn't even hear what he said. That was a stutter. Uh, listen, Jesus uh, tells the boys, the disciples, that's what I call them, tells the boys, go to the other side of the lake, okay? They get on a boat, and they start heading on to the other side of the lake. Jesus goes sleepy night-night time on the boat, all right? While he's sleeping... Okay? A massive storm comes up on the Sea of Galilee. Okay? Now, if you've ever been on a boat in a storm, it is somewhat scary. Fair enough? So we can understand why the boys would be scared. They get scared. They're freaking out like little girls. No offense to you girls, except some of you. But they're scared. They're scared, right? And so the scripture records records that they're fearful for their life. They think they're going to die. And so what do they do? Maybe waking up Jesus would be a good idea, right? So they're like shaking the Savior... Hey, wake up here, right? And he wakes up, and you you remember the question that he asks? One of my favorite questions Jesus ever says in all the Gospels. He doesn't say how or what. He says, where is your faith? Where? Is it right here, right now? Certainly doesn't seem like it, right? So then he calms the storm, and they say, even the winds and the waves obey him, right? I feel like some of you, and even me, have the propensity to think that Jesus is seated now at the right hand of God sleeping, laid back in some lazy boy, and when it's time to come back and get the bride, when it's time for Revelation 19 to happen, when it's time for the Son of Man to come back and get his church, God's going to give him a little nudge, say, hey, Jesus, it's go time, you better go get the church, and then he wakes up. That's not the picture of the Scripture. Jesus is still serving. He's still enacting. He's still our intercessor. He's still our mediator. And all of a sudden, when you see this picture, the Trinity... Father, Son, and Spirit just come alive. Father still receiving glory, Son still serving in a different way than when He uh, washed the feet of the disciples, but in a similar heart and passion, and the Spirit now indwelling in believers, enabling us to obey. That's the power of the Trinity now. So Jesus is inactive. He's not sleeping. He's not waiting. He is acting still as our intercessor and high priest. And that was the whole picture that He's trying to portray to these readers. Listen, you thought that these other priests were good because they represented you? How about this? who not only came perfect, lived, died, and resurrected, and he's still representing you. He's still there, present, ever present. And so that's this picture here. He's somehow seated, and then has this opportunity where Stephen sees him standing. Love it. We're just beginning that. We have to keep going here. Put back up verse 2 for me. A minister in the holy places in the true tent. You guys like camping? You guys like camping? I hate camping. I hate it. I like showers. I don't like <laughs> tents and bugs. I don't I like I love me some air conditioning, okay? Now I want to make sure you understand we're not talking about a Columbia like Bass Pro tent here, okay? Right? The, the does Columbia even make tents? I don't know. I just I saw the label at Bass Pro one time. I'm not sure. I don't even go to Bass Pro. Well, who am I kidding, right? He's a minister in the holy places in the true tent. Now, the concept of the tent comes from Exodus. And the Ark of the Covenant, which carried the law, the Ten Commandments, was constructed by Moses and others just to the T of what God had desired. And we'll look at that here in a second. And this was often called the tent. A tabernacle in the Old Testament could also be called a tent. But here, we're seeing something that's the true tent, the real tent. The heavenly realms. It's in this tent now that God, through Christ, is enacting and serving as a minister. It's in that place that the Lord has set up and not man. And again, for me, this is comforting. God has built it. And so what he's saying here, what you want to continue to follow? Some men in a tent that the hands of a temporal human made? Or would you rather trust in a tent that God has constructed? You take your pick, right? Right? Verse 3 says this, amazing stuff. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Let's talk about this for a moment. A high priest would have to do two things primarily. He would first have to offer gifts for Thanksgiving. Okay, so he would offer gifts for Thanksgiving. And his other role would be to sacrifice for forgiveness. These are the two main roles of a priest. I've already talked about it, but a priest's work is literally never, ever done. Let me tell you what I mean. Today is my nine-year anniversary. Thank you. And uh, I'm spending it here with you. Uh, I'm a great husband. Um, No, I took her out last night in the town. We went to Lone Star. (laughs) Just because we had a gift card there. Don't worry about it. So I met my wife, You guys, some of you guys have heard the story. I met my wife when, when I was 12, started dating when we were 16. She's unbelievable. I love her. I can say this at the second service. She's incredibly hot. Um, love the girl. But every once in a while in my marriage, um, I feel a certain way. Now, I'm going to go ahead and precursor this with, I do this more than she does, okay? So if she listens to the podcast later, I'm good. But I'm gonna, I need to speak from my perspective, okay? So I'm a bigger sinner than she is in this way but just work with me. I feel like sometimes, and maybe this is just in general with the female species, I feel like sometimes that, like, I can just, like, I can cook a meal. I could have went and bought the meal for her. Like, I prepared everything. I set everything out. I have candles lit. I've got Yanni playing on the CD player. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> t- I mean, everything, everything is just perfect, you know? A- and then she comes in, and and then she would sit down, and she'd be like, so, like, like, where's the flowers? You know, like, are you serious? Is this all you got? I'm like, what? I've, just, I've been working all day at making this perfect. It is so demoralizing when you feel like what you've done, though you feel like you've done a lot isn't enough, isn't it? It's one of the most demoralizing feelings you can ever experience in your life. And in and, and marriage, you really experience it. Because so, sometimes, like, your perspective isn't quite their perspective. And so you get this sense of, like, I don't even, I, I can't do anymore. That's the whole picture of what's happening in the Old Covenant. A priest gives thanks and a priest offers sacrifices and it will never be enough. Could you imagine how demoralizing? Could you imagine how demoralizing it would be to give sacrifice and then the next moment after the sacrifice is done and they sin again, the more sacrifice would have to be made for that sin, do you understand? So incredibly demoralizing. That was the whole picture of the Old Covenant. You need something better. You see? You need something better. This isn't, though it's designed by God to point to Jesus, this isn't working well, because it's never enough. It's always having to give more, and even at that point when it's seemingly enough, it's still not enough. And so to that, it is necessary for this priest, Jesus, also to have something to offer, (laughs) This is one of those moments where I just kind of smile at the scripture. These priests, their work is never done. Thus, it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Well, this priest certainly offered something. He offered himself, and as Hebrews is already described, and will go on to describe, a once-for-all sacrifice, as we've already talked about tonight. It's done. It's final and completely sufficient. And that's not demoralizing. And that's not burdening. Though at times you make it to be, it's incredibly freeing. And then he does a play on words here in verse 4. Look at this. He says, Now, if we were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. I say it's a play on words because it's a little bit humorous. Because he's saying if he was on earth, he wouldn't even be a priest. Why? Because it doesn't come from the line of Aaron. And yet, he's a much better priest than all these other human priests. But in the human transform, or the human understanding rather, he wouldn't even be a priest. That's how far above the Christ is. So, he takes four verses. One, two, three, and four. And what he's putting and pounding in their hearts is this. Jesus, as a minister, is seated and standing and you need to understand that the gospel then is a means of action, right? So all of that is is set up to say these two verses, and I'm telling you what right now, stay with me through these two verses, unbelievable stuff. Verse 5, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Has a shadow ever messed you up a little bit? Yeah. right? So you see a shadow in a hallway or something, right? See a shadow down an alley. See a shadow in your car. Have you ever seen, thought you saw a shadow in your car, right? You like accidentally left the door unlocked. and You get in your car and you're like, is someone in my car? <laughs> and uh, like there's like eight movies, you know, that you've seen recently where like all of a sudden they look behind and right there's a man in a mask or something, right? <laughs> so when I was a kid, I uh, lived, uh, had a room. Uh, and uh, in my room, I had the classic Nerf basketball hoop. Have you guys seen these? I know nowadays everything happens in video games. Back when I was a kid, we actually did things that were constructive, (laughs) and um, and so I had a a a nerf basketball hoop, and I would play with it. It was great, you know, you shoot and you run around. But every night uh, that the moon was bright, it would the moon would kind of shine through uh, a tree in my front yard, and uh, and as this light would shine through the tree in my front yard, uh, every night that this would occur, my basketball hoop would look like a man with no head, okay? Literally, like the shape and everything. It was a decapitated man in my room, all right? <laughs> now, the, the silly thing about this is, is the games you play in your mind, and I still remember this as a kid. You think if you don't open your eyes far enough like the thing's not gonna see you, you know? And if the thing doesn't see you, then you're good. Have you ever played this game before? Come on, you yeah. just played it last night, didn't you? Uh-huh, <laughs> look, you looked across the room, you saw a little something, something, and you're like, oh, I don't think so, right? right? I, w- I would like play that game in me. Here's here's the crazy thing though, listen. It has no substance. Like it's a shadow is simply an image of something that's like, sh- that light's shining through. It li- It has no, absolutely no substance and yet can garnish so much attention from us. Well, that's that's the whole thesis of the book of Hebrews. You're putting your weight and significance and belief in things that are just an image and a copy of the real thing. Like lights shining through and they're meant to reveal something else and you're putting your faith in a stinking shadow that doesn't even have substance. It doesn't it has no weight. You could walk over and run your hand through it. It's not even present. And that's the whole picture of the whole old covenant designed by God to point to Jesus as an image of what Jesus would be in the better form. And that's it. But these readers were still struggling, putting their faith in shadows and not just priests, but in religion, in deeds, in systems, in orientation. And I wonder for you. And this is where the rubber meets the road a little bit in our life. Where have you put faith in something that's not even real? You're trusting in shadows, things that have given you a semblance of security and worth, but really have nothing to them. When you have the real thing in the true tent at your access, you see? That's the picture he's saying. He goes on to further his point by saying this. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, this is uh, quoting here Exodus uh, 25, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. I've already quoted this for you, already shown this to you. What the point is, is Moses makes the tent, and guess what? He's making it how he's hearing it. It's still made by man. What God has done is perfect because God made it. The true tent Sending his son in the true picture of service. Are you with me? Now all of these things are building for him to say what he says in verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry. that we don't talk like this. And I pray that after tonight we do. Christ obtains a ministry, right? He dies, bleeds on a cross, comes out of the grave, and the image is, at that moment, he obtains a ministry. What's his ministry? That is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant. He mediates is better. Mediates is to represent or to bring peace from one thing to another. That mediates, Uh, intercess is another word. That covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Jesus inherits the still act of service. Now, listen, for the next few minutes, stay with me as we bring all of these pieces together. Let me start with a question. Why would you ever serve? Why would you ever serve? So when you think of the word serve. If you were to answer, and you had a piece of paper in front of you, and I gave you a big pen, and I said, listen, write down why you would ever serve. And then I gathered all of those answers together, and I started reading them aloud. Could we agree that there would be a variance of answers? I mean, a massive variance of answers. This is why I serve it. This is why I serve it. It's over here. It does this for me, or it does this for others. Then, if I asked another question, not why would you ever serve, but what would be the motive behind your service? And, and, and I told you, you had to be honest, right? Like you had to be real. Well, I serve because I feel like I have to. Serve because if I don't, others are going to look down on me. I, I serve because ultimately it just makes me feel like I'm doing some good for the universe. I serve, be- and the list would go on and on. I serve because, I serve because, I serve because. Now, all of these things are wrapped up in the picture of what we're seeing here let me explain the old testament the old covenant the very picture that we're seeing was bound in service let me let me let me explain this to you for all the people living under the old covenant their service was bound why they couldn't talk to god in and of themselves outside of a few exemptions their speaking to god was done through what was done through a priest the priest would make sacrifice. The priest would be the mouthpiece for the people to God. Their service was bound. Then guess what? God would rarely, outside of a few exemptions, speak to the people as a whole. He would use what? Prophets. He would send a prophet. The prophet would be the mouthpiece from God to people. And so people's whole ministry, their service, was bound. Why? Because it was all based on other people doing the work for them. Bound. Completely restricted. Restricted. But the picture of the new covenant, of what Christ has now done, is he's taken this concept of service and ministry and he has released the church. That's the best way I could say it. He's released the church. You're not bound by religion, you're not bound by condemnation. You're now called as ambassadors to go and serve. And guess what? Because I'm your representation. You're not bound by anything and any man. I've completely freed you. So go and serve. So go and serve. So go and love and go enjoy and go completely living, not robbed by life, but enjoying the grace that I've given and freely serving everywhere. Now, this sounds all nice and dandy, but when you start to realize how much of your heart is crippled by impure service, you start to realize how many shadows you believe in. When you see that how much of your service is done impurely, you start to see how much of this old covenant shadow stuff you're really resting in. Let me say it to you this way. What I see in this passage is the power of who it is we're to look to. So I would say, so who should we learn uh, service from? And so the good Sunday school boy would raise his hand wearing his fluorescent pants and nice tie, and he would say, Jesus... Jesus is who we should look to. And where should we look to Jesus in this way to learn about service? Well, we should look to Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I would say amen. Those who are books of the Bible clearly portray Jesus serving. We've already mentioned one, uh, one passage tonight of Jesus on his knees, wiping the grime off of his disciples' feet. But you see, my friends, we've learned something new this evening. The picture of Jesus serving is not just in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John Jesus is still serving, is still ministering, and is still our picture of what pure service looks like. Now let me say it this way. Uh, Jonah had some issues with this. Some of you guys know the story of Jonah. You've seen the Veggie Tale, which cleared it up for you. Um, Jonah's called by God to go to Nineveh. Okay, And in the Veggie Tale... The Ninevites slap each other with fish. Have you seen this? I'm like, seriously, big idea? Like, couldn't you have come up with something better than that? That's not biblical, just in case you were wondering. God says, hey, you're going to go to Nineveh. And Jonah's like, yeah, about that. I'm not really going to do that. And uh, what happens is, what Jonah shows is, yeah, the, the whole service thing is really on my terms. I'll serve who I want, when I want, and how I want to serve them. And what God gives us the opportunity to see under the Old Covenant in Jonah is that's not going to roll. Okay? I'm going to get what I want on my time, God says. So he goes on a boat, and you guys know the story. A big storm comes, and soon they realize it's because of Jonah's running from God that he's, so a big whale comes and eats him. And I know many of you guys feel like this is just some biblical fairy tale. that happens, the fish barfs him up, and then finally goes to Nineveh. The picture is this. If you believe serving has anything to do with you, then you've missed the example of Jesus. Jesus comes down, Philippians 2 says, humbles himself, becomes obedient, even to death on a cross, and the purity of his service, still seen now, is in I serve because you are God. I don't need anything else. I don't need any other motivation, I don't need any person to look at me and slap me on the back, I don't need any missional call, I don't need any mission statement, I don't need a cool t-shirt. God is God, therefore I serve, and that's pure service. Now, what I look out and see in our community at times, and in the church in America as a whole, are people who have been robbed of life by life because they're not affected by the final work of Jesus. And so therefore, they're getting frustrated and begin biting each other. And guess what's happening? They don't even have time to serve because they're spending the majority of their time looking in the mirror saying, woe is me or great is me. But when the freedom of Christ, the joy of Jesus the power of the resurrection has freed you from all that. And you do what I did with my son Dawson. He will stop crying. I don't need to worry about this anymore. Do not be anxious about anything but, but in prayer and petition. Offer everything to God. When you start embracing that non-anxiety filled life, guess what happens? Then you have time to serve. And all of a sudden your whole life starts pointing outward to everyone else. And you embrace that your whole life now under the new covenant is the church released. Go. Go. The scripture says in Matthew 28, make disciples, go and love, go and serve. And you do it for no other reason except that God is God. And that's completely fine with you. You're completely content in that. And so even this weekend for us, as we have an opportunity to open up this Blanchett Park Pool, and many of you have given school supplies, the overall investment from this church alone is in the upwards of $12,000, another $2,000 from businesses and communities. Unbelievable stuff. But why would you go and love these people and encourage them? It's got to be simply in the purity of God is God. And so here I am. And so what happens? Listen, what happens is life's not robbing you of life and service becomes your life. And that was the whole picture of the gospel. You're, You're ambassadors. To do what? To reveal the freedom that you have. Not bound by the old covenant where everything is going through someone else. He's your intercessor. He's your representative. So you can live. And your whole existence is just others, putting others first, esteeming others, serving others. For me, my wife and my kids and my church and my community and my neighbors, that's the life and life to the full. Where I'm not at the center of it, He is. And because He is, His children are seen in beauty by me and not in judgment. You see what I'm saying? But I look out and I hear that stupid percentage. That 20% of the people are doing 80% of the work in the church and that makes me angry. I'm like, are you serious? The very people that have the opportunity to reveal how true service looks like is by showing the power of being freed in Christ to just constantly serve. And certainly it begins somewhere and fleshes itself out from there. But I want you to ask yourself some hard questions tonight. And it begins with simply, why would you ever serve? And what happens as all of the things start to crumble? What would be left? This true, pure-hearted desire just to worship God because He's God? Or because everyone has to see you doing good works? So that in their eyes, you become this awesome person. Let's stand together if you could. When you purify something, let's take water for instance. You'll take the substance and then You'll add a filter to it of some kind. And then you'll let the substance run through that filter. And the image is that the impurities will kind of fall out. And what will be left is the purest form of whatever it is. And I feel like for us, we need a drastic measure of purity. We need a drastic measure of filtration. Do you understand? If we serve in impurity, that we will be revealers of a bound gospel. Do you understand that? We'll be revealers of something that's bound and not free. And therefore, we will make a mockery of the very thing that's given us life. But through the purification process by the blood of Jesus, our service can become pure and pure. And in that moment and in that method, we get to become ambassadors of the real gospel. We're waiting on this true tent that we'll get to experience. And in the meantime, guess what, everyone? We're going to get to show you what true life looks like. And it's not inward focused at all. It's God focused and loving his creation, his people, his children. So if if you're cool with it, I just want to pray for purity for us, man. And I don't know what it is for you. I don't know if it's approval of man. I don't know if it's making people happy. I don't know if it's, you know, that you still think that God's going to look down and smile at you because you bought a book bag. I don't know what it is for you. But I want to pray for purity. And I believe as he rises us up to be released in this city for a movement of the gospel in St. Charles, I've got to believe if we embrace this cause, ambassadors freeing to serve, my friends, we're just seeing the beginning. So let me pray for you and pray for me to be purified. So God, please create in us a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit in us. Pull out the impurities. Grab the things that are hindering us, still binding us up. God, I pray that you'll release us, God. Help us feel free to know, God, that by your grace we are completely set free by the better promises of the new covenant. God, help us celebrate that. Help us live life not robbed by ourselves, but rather living because of you. God, give us that, please, Lord Jesus. And I pray, Father, that your desires become our desires. And so help all of us now look to your son, Jesus, who is still serving.